Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hi, this is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and welcome. We are here to talk about and celebrate the visual workplace, letting the workplace speak. Said another way, how to make work make sense, how to take the struggle out of work, how to make work actually enjoyable. Thanks for taking time in your busy day to to tune in. Before we get started, I want you to remember that I'm counting on your feedback to help me shape the show. It's all about the visual workplace, which has to do with cultural and business benefit. It has to do with many, many, many aspects of being at work. And I want to emphasize the things that are important to you. So you can contact me directly through radio at visualworkplace.com or through our own website, visualworkplace.com, whatever you like. Today we're going to be talking about visual thinkers wanted. How do you become a visual thinker? How do you learn to recognize the enemy called motion and the information deficits that cause that motion? And how do you learn to eliminate them, eliminate them both through solutions that are visual? Because when you eliminate the information deficit, you automatically eliminate the motion that is triggered by them. The answer is the eight building blocks of visual thinking. In a previous show, I introduced you to the first of these building blocks, eye-driven. You may remember. We examined the two driving questions. What do I need to know? What do I need to share? And the central importance of that I, of the individual. That I is you. That I is me. That I is supervisors and trainers and operators and nurses, doctors and CEOs, chairmen of the board, members of the maintenance crew, purchasers, field reps. The I is the person who earns his or her living in the world of work, even as a volunteer, and wants to take the struggle out. What do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work? You get the answer of that and you embed it as a visual device into the physical landscape of work. And then after you get control of your corner of the world, You move on to the second question. What do I need to share? What do I know that other people need to know that I need to share so they can do their work better, faster, safer, and in more alignment with the corporate intent? What do I need to know? What do I need to share? And we say the the first building block of visuality is I-driven. Now I want to complete the discussion today. Our show is called Visual Thinkers Wanted. I want to walk you through the logic of the seven remaining building blocks, and they are standards, six core questions, information deficits, motion, work, value field, and motion metrics. They're all linked. So you're not going to hear about seven separate things. You're going to hear a logic that is presented around which these seven building blocks are situated. Okay? And... To a great extent, I think you'll see how to use these building blocks at work as you attempt to create or continue creating a better functioning, maybe even a fully functioning, sustainable visual workplace environment and a spirited and engaged workforce, which is always very exciting to be surrounded by people 
who are spirited in their work and to feel that in yourself. These building blocks represent a pathway to a new way of looking at problems and a new way of solving them permanently through workplace visuality. Once you understand that, you can apply these building blocks to trigger these solutions. Visuality, as I've said again and again and again, is a language, a language of your operational system embedded. It is not just a bunch of point solutions, some stack lights here, a border there, a placard there. It is, in fact, a language. And that language exists whether the landscape that it's embedded in is a hospital, pharmacy, military depot. It doesn't matter. Dry cleaners, an open pit mine, which is a really a lot of fun to implement. We already know about visuality because we already live in communities that are ruled by these devices. These devices represent a powerful vocabulary. They represent meaning that we recognize and we respond to seamlessly. You know what? You don't have to figure things out as you're driving along. The visual devices are coming at you even inside the car at the, de- at the dashboard level and then out on the road and alongside of the road and over the road. This language is speaking to us all the time and we simply respond almost all the time seamlessly. And when we don't, when the visual device is missing or we misread it, accidents happen. So visuality is there to help our behavior, our performance align. So off we go. I'm hoping that you'll find this informative and I hope inspiring. What do I mean by inspiring? Well, inspiring you to get visual or to get more visual. And I want to say before we begin with the first building block, please send pictures of your visual solutions. I would love to see them and we would love to post them on our website. This is your contribution. This is your creation and it will be endlessly interesting. So here we go with the first building block. The first building block is standards. Let's go back and look at the definition of visual workplace I gave you a few shows ago. This is one that I constructed at least 20 years ago and it has served me so well. A visual workplace is a self-ordering, self-explaining, self-regulating, and self-improving work environment. That means there is a feedback loop that the workplace is speaking to us. It's a workplace where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night because of visual devices. So that's our definition. And we're going to look at the second part of it, the part that says, where what is supposed to happen does happen. And what exactly does that mean? What is supposed to happen? The answer is standards. That's your second building block. Standards. Your standards are supposed to happen. When we use the term standards in workplace visuality, we're not referring to time or accounting standards used in bids or quotes or contracts. Instead, we mean the information that defines exactly what we are supposed to do and how we are supposed to do it. We define the what and the how. More precisely, the what refers to your technical standards, which I'm going to explain right now, and the how refers to your procedural standards. And I think this is an important distinction to make so that you don't clump all standards together because in their function, they are importantly different. Let me explain. A technical standard is a specification. It can be a specification for product, for a process, for service. It's a dimension. It's a tolerance. It's a value. In manufacturing, 
It's the detailed requirements found in engineering worksheets and drawings. These requirements are the precise values you add as you convert material into a product or as you develop and deliver a service, a service your customer wants to buy, a product your customer wants to buy. Let me give you some examples. Technical standards. So if you're in manufacturing, you're looking at the OD. What is that? <laughs> That's an abbreviation for outer diameter or the ID, the inner diameter. That'll be the outer diameter of a pipe or a machining and the inner diameter if it has a hole roll, uh, running down the middle. Pressure sensitivity, coil resistance, cut length, heat treat temperature, gloss level. If you're in a hospital, it might be the exact degree of radiation for a patient site or the dilution level of Taxotere, which is a chemotherapy drug. If you're in, in insurance in an office, Maybe it's the required response time on a fire claim. These are technical standards. You need to meet them. In an admin office, maybe it's the end-of-month sales figures. So here's what you do. Once you identify that spec, that technical standard, your next step in a visual workplace is to make the spec visual. And when you do, you have anchored that spec, that technical standard visually into the physical landscape of work. It's there when and as you need it, you pull it to you. You don't have to go looking for it. There are lots and lots of clever ways to do this. The technical standards are known because you put them there. The workplace is telling you about them because you put them there. As we move on through shows, we'll get more and more into these so that you'll see examples of them. We'll either describe them to you or we'll post them on our website. There's a special page. So that's the first half of what's supposed to happen, your technical standards, specifications. The second is your procedural standards. You already know what a procedural standard is. You just don't call it by that name, probably. A procedural standard is a method. It's an SOP, a standard operating procedure, a preset sequence of steps predetermined, proofed, that tells you how to do or make something or how to perform a task. Procedural standards tell you exactly how to achieve what? Your technical standards. Procedural standards create those outcomes. You see how nicely that fits? So do you, if you need to form a 2-inch aluminum ingot into a 0.50-millimeter thick coil, you follow the step-by-step roadmap that is your procedural standards. If you want to insert an IV precisely, correctly, and painlessly into a patient's arm, you follow the procedure for that. The same with programming a CNC machine in the radial department. You follow the SOP for that. Here's some more examples, and they all begin with how. How to rivet a bolt, how to set a feed rate, how to weld a rounded joint, how to tighten a four-nut wheel, how to change over the winder machine and in less than nine minutes. How to verify a chemotherapy regimen. How to close the monthly books. Do you see that? Once you identify that standard operating procedure or even one that's giving you trouble, one that you're having a hard time remembering, one that seems to challenge you, a problem SOP, you make it visual. And when you do, you anchor that SOP into the physical landscape of work. So I want you to understand, lot of, when you make these standards visual, it doesn't mean that you will execute that standard each and every time precisely. 
visual standards are not powerful. In another show, we'll talk about the power levels of visual devices. They can't make you do it. It's like seeing the sign that says, slow down, children playing. That's a visual standard on the road. But some people don't even see it, and some people see it and ignore it. The standard itself has no power to make us do it, perform in accordance to it. So what we have to do, and this is, again, not the, not the focus of this show, we, we create more powerful visual devices. And the example I gave on the very first show is we translate that slow down children playing into a more powerful visual device, for example, a speed bump. That speed bump still represents the standard, but it's more deeply embedded into our behavior. I think that's so exciting. I really love that notion. And you know, a lot, a lot of managers are, and supervisors are very excited about visual standards because they think once you say it, you're going to do it, meaning you're going to do it. Once they say it, you're going to do it, <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. We're human and we forget and we forget that we forgot. So. But standards are the second building block of visual thinking. Combined, your procedural and your technical standards are at the heart of all operational excellence. They're not alone, but they are at the heart. They cause reliable, repeatable, cost-effective, high-quality work to occur. The absolute bedrock of all outcomes and the core of all profit-making. And this is even if you're in a high-complexity low-volume work environment. And by that, I mean we have a client who changes products every two years. So they have to, they're building very complex mechanisms, configurations. So that's building block number two. And we're going to go for a break now. I hope you find this exciting and informative. I do. <laughs> and I've been in this field for almost 30 years. It's really a thrill for me to share this with you. And I'll see you in just a little while. bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. 
If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, welcome back to the Visual Workplace and to our show on Visual Thinkers Wanted. We're walking through the remaining seven building blocks of the building blocks of visual thinking. We did the first building block. We dedicated a whole show to it, and now we're walking through the rest of them. And we're on building block number three. We just finished standards, the second building block, and now we're on the six core questions. So when you take a closer look at your technical and procedural standards, what is supposed to happen? you'll notice that they are made up of a set of specific answers. This was so interesting when I discovered it about 15 years ago. Maybe some of you have discovered it instantly. It took me a while. Your standards are made up of specific answers, and they are answers to one or more of only six questions. I call them the six core questions. And here they are. Where, what, when, who, how many, and how. Those six core questions. Where, what, when, who, how many, and how. Answers to those six questions represent the details of every standard that exists. They also represent all possible answers to the two driving questions. What do I need to know? What do I need to share? That means when you answer those six questions visually, translating them into visual devices, the details of both types of standards and the questions that they trigger when they're not completely in place become visually embedded, available to you and anyone else at a glance as part of the very process of work. The workplace speaks. The workplace speaks, able to tell us at last where things are, what needs to be done, by when or for how long, that's the when part, by whom or by which machine or tool, which, which apparatus, in what quantity, precisely how. Fantastic. And that's the third building block, the six core questions. And we translate them separately into these wonderful visual devices. And that brings us to building block number four, information deficits. So once we've understood the six core questions and their importance, our task becomes simple. As I said a moment ago, you find the missing answers to those questions, to those six core questions, and you convert them into visual devices. And, you know, if I just want to mention, some of you are, have been doing 5S for a while. You know, you can just take one of those six core questions if you want to refresh your implementation of 5S and do something other than audit, 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 but actually stimulate some new level of creativity, and you can say, let's have a visual how many month. Let's just focus the whole month on capturing the visual how many visually or the visual what or the visual who. You can spend a whole month on this. You can make the campaign in your department or through the whole enterprise. And I'm including marketing and purchasing. So you, another term, let's go back to the information deficits. Another term for missing answers is information deficits, and that's the fourth building block. All befores that you've ever seen are examples of missing information. All of the befores before you did your 5S, all the messes, all of the befores 
if you were to ask how many of the six core questions are answered in those befores, the answer would be the same for each and every one of them. None. There's no where there. There's no what, when, who, how many, or how. The area is full of missing answers, full of information deficits, full of motion, dangerous, costly, discouraging, dangerous, 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 and non-productive. And the after is not just neat and clean. The after is visual. To be safe and reliable and cost-effective, the after has got to be visual. That's the way it is. Motion is minimized, but not through neat and clean, through getting those information deficits in place, as I've been talking about. You know, we are going to do five or six or seven or maybe ten shows on 5S. There are so many layers. There's not just what it is and why it is and what its benefits are, but it's also how to implement each of those steps so they grab and you can build on them, and also what to do when you're stalled how to implement, and how to use it as a true platform for going more deeply onto the visual journey, into the visual value stream. Missing answers trigger motion. Motion is triggered when answers vital to the work at hand are missing, are wrong, late, incomplete, unavailable, or simply not known. And you know what? Another way to say this is, I do not know, I do not share. Ha! There it is again. There's the hookup. Information deficits have a powerful negative impact on a company. You know, when vital workplace information is repeatedly not available, something goes out of the workplace. We become immune to a sense of urgency at work. It's not a question of motivating people. It's a question of getting the information there. We come to work to work. We want to be excellent. That is built into our chemistry. But in the face of... Well, let's just say no one wants to wander around all day chasing down the same teeny tiny bits of information that they chased down yesterday. It's hard to imagine a more degrading experience or one that is more a colossal waste of time. And if these tidbits should be held by a select few individuals, even if it's your supervisor, well, and other individuals who may withhold that information, that's not going to be your supervisor, Insult is added to, in, to, to in, injury. I, I want to talk about um, information hoarders in a moment. But first, let me set this up a little bit more. The damage done to the bottom line by missing information is huge. And because it's minute, we tend to not notice it. It's microscopic. Lean does not address this issue. If you are familiar with lean, many of you do lean Kaizen blitzes. Six Sigma certainly does not. That's why visual is needed as a capable partner, as a strategic partner to your improvement process because it addresses the whole level of language, information, and I rarely use the word, but I'm going to use it now, communication, reliable communication. And, you know, you can just look at your KPIs, your performance measures to tell the stories. Ordering errors, defects, rework, scrap rates, Chronic late deliveries, you look at long cycle times, error-laden sales reports, information deficits hurt everyone. Their power is in their absence, the absence of answers. Isn't that interesting? The power of information deficits is because answers are missing, and that's a powerful 
it's actually highly disempowering, but you can feel the power of those answers because they're not there. They're like holes torn in a fishing net. Something of value escapes with every missing answer. Think about a fishing net. There may be little rips. They start small. We don't even notice it. Little tiny fish escapes. But over time, the hole gets bigger. The information deficits multiply. And not only does the loss of so many fish add up, but now the big fish escape as well. Okay? What do we have to do? We have to learn to see these information deficits. Learn to see. The first goal is to see what isn't there. You got to see the holes. You got to see what isn't there. You got to see the missing information. But that's a hard assignment when you're chasing down missing, when, when chasing down these missing answers become a kind of routine part of your day, a way of life. When that happens, we barely even notice them. They just are chronic abnormalities and we write them off as business as usual. The result is when our work area overflows with information deficits, and I've seen many, many, many that do, it's heartbreaking. We simply get busier and busier and because we're human and we love excellence, we try harder and harder. And we hardly have time to notice that we don't get much work done. But we don't. Information deficits are the fourth building block of visual thinking. In a moment, I'm going to give you a way to notice it, to actually be able to identify information deficits. You're going to use yourself as the yardstick there. But first, I want to talk a little bit about information hoarders because there are some of you out there. Information deficits can become so habitual that chasing down answers is an expected part of the workday. In companies like that, it's not unusual for people to kind of hoard or withhold information, stockpile it. It's their protection. But some of them become information hoarders. You know, when an actual, there's not an actual position called um, uh, information hoarder. There might be someone who does the expediting or whatever, but it's understood in a company that someone, Mr. or Miss so-and-so, is the go-to person, the person you go to when you need an answer, an information hoarder. This is so erosive for the work culture. These kinds of people, and they are there with good intentions, they represent an unofficial system that makes the official system of work work better. No decision is final until the information system, the hoarders, validate it. Over time, information kingdoms develop and people, employees come to depend on them. Is this your experience? I've been in companies like this. Information hoarders are most dangerous when information is the most scarce or when it is wrong, unavailable, irrelevant, incomplete. These are terrible words unreliable later, just plain not known. You know what happens in organizations like this? It's very unhappy. They tell lies. They tell lies to themselves and to others because they simply don't know the truth. As a result, people turn to information hoarders to attempt to learn the truth, what's really going on, what's really happening, what's really required, what's the real, real, real forecast. So, Being a single trustee of the truth is simply too much power for any single group or person to hold, however well-meaning their intentions. The result is the rest of us feel 
disempowered, and they feel altogetherly too powerful. So information hoarding is a real sign of trouble in the enterprise, but they are not the trouble itself, and that's the point here. The trouble itself is the existence of information deficits because those deficits destroy our fundamental need to trust the workplace, to trust the place where we are employed. Faced with chronic information deficits, we may continue to attempt to create value for our customers and for our company. But that attempt will come at a very high price and usually not that successfully. So I know I'm, I'm giving you the sad story of maybe your company. I hope not. This is a primitive level of problem in an organization. But I want to emphasize again that it's on a microscopic level. And we track it by tracking our questions, which brings us to our fifth building block, motion, moving without working. I'm going to get started and then we're going to go to break and I will plump this up for you. I hope this is making sense. I know it's very structured, but with the building blocks, as you become a visual thinker, you have to really follow a kind of protocol, principles of visuality, so you, so you get the hang of it. And you know what I love about visuality is you're going to use yourself. You're not going to have to build a system or build a framework uh, involving other people. You can do this individually as a scientist of your own process. And I'm talking about the CEO as well. And I'm talking about the engineering manager. I have seen amazing visual devices that help VPs of engineering go through their tasks, not just quickly and smoothly, but with a new degree of excellence that is as exciting to the VP as it is to me. Okay, we have to know that language is our tool it is how we create meaning in our life, and we have to learn to embed it into the physical workplace through visual devices. This is a whole another landscape of possibility. It's the groundwork of all of all human transaction. So I'm in a moment. I'm going to wax poetic, and instead, I think we should go to a break right now. And uh, I look forward to what happens when you come back. Thanks. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. 
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, welcome back. I'm kind of chomping at the bit because now we're going to get to motion. What we're doing today in today's show, Visual Thinkers Wanted, is to pace through the seven of the eight building blocks of visual thinking. We did the first building block, I Driven, what do I need to know, what do I need to share in our first, in uh, the first segment of this. So we're talking about motion. Motion is the big bugabear. Motion is the scary piece. But motion is also our great friend. And let me tell you why. Motion is defined as moving without working. And it comes in a thousand familiar forms and disguises. Wandering, wondering, searching, guessing. This is, these are microscopic. Checking, checking again, handling, handling again, counting, which is already motion. Counting again. Or simply waiting or simply stopping. You stop because, you know what, you can't get the information you need. But the most common and the most dangerous, but also the most noticeable form of motion is your questions. Asking, answering, interrupting to ask, being interrupted to answer, and waiting for answers. Questions have a peculiar multiplier effect that makes them very dangerous. Here's what happens. When you interrupt someone to ask a question, no matter how urgent or genuine, or when someone interrupts you to ask one of them, two people are automatically in motion, you and the other person. You are both in the condition called moving without working. Well, your mouth is moving and no work is getting done. The motion caused by questions is like a contagious disease. You start by asking one person, and if he or she doesn't know the answer, then she asks, he asks a second person, and then that second person may not know the answer, and asks a third person, and so on and so forth, and in no time, the whole room is contaminated. They're all in motion. Should I go on? Well, let me just add, do you know that research shows that it takes us, you and me, eight to ten minutes to recover from an interruption, an, an interruption, any interruption, eight to ten minutes to get back, not just to the task that we were doing before we were interrupted, but to the level of focus, of intensity, of concentration. Wow. Eight to ten minutes. You know, if you're wondering if there's some quality engineers, there are some quality techs, us who are conscious about uh, quality and we're wondering why our quality is going downhill, well, keep track of the interruptions that you have during the day related to questions. And you'll see that you're rarely in a state of deep enough concentration to actually follow that SOP that you have surfaced visually, okay, to concentrate on it. That is why motion is called corporate enemy number one. That's what I call it. It spreads into every corner of the enterprise and it eats away at value. I want to take a moment and and tell you why I use the word motion and not the more familiar word non-value-adding activity or waste or even the Japanese muda. So first, 
the terms Muda waste and non-value-adding activity, uh, um, well, non-value-adding activity is something that I started to avoid about 15 years ago because I noticed when I used that term, I caused heartache for the very people whose jobs were in fact non-value-adding. The inspectors, the expediters, the rework operators, the material handlers, and even supervisors and managers. Far too often when these really fine human beings heard me call their jobs non-value-adding, they concluded that they, as people, were non-value-adding. Nothing, of course, is further from the truth. But when I saw how my words affected them, I decided not to describe, to describe anybody's job as non-value-adding. The activity might be, but it's not, that's not your job. And I just swore it off. It was a big relief for me to just get that nomenclature out of my mind. Now, for the word waste, I don't use the word waste because I think it's very general, even though it subdivides into seven or eight. Motion is very specific. It's one of the seven deadly wastes. But it is also tied to a specific unanswered question, and it is tied to my legs carrying me away from my area trying to get answers to the question, where are my pliers? I own my legs. I own that question. I own that motion. And for me, I use motion because of that specificity, and waste is too general. I mean, my recollection of waste, frankly, is I was about 12 years old. I came home from school. It was the beginning of summer. And my father, who was retired, said, Sis, get on your boots and get a bucket. The weeping willow has got into the plumbing system. That's what waste means for me, and I've never forgotten that image. I spent that afternoon. We had a huge basement. Anyway, you get the picture, and perhaps I'm <laughs> being too personal. And as for muda, muda means waste in Japanese, but I prefer to use a word that doesn't need a translation, even though many, many of you are familiar with it. I'd like, you know, I'd like to just call it motion, and I'm going to. So let me talk about what motion is not. Motion is not taking a break. Motion is not you're chatting with a friend or me chatting with a friend or me calling home or me going to the restroom. Nobody wants to turn you or me into a tireless robot, the energizer bunny who just keeps going and going. None of those activities that I described are motion. They are instead ways that we maintain our humanity at work, our sense of community, of safety and personal comfort. So don't worry about those. And if you're a supervisor, don't you dare worry people about those things. They're not the enemy. The enemy is in the information deficits. So notice your motion and you'll only be a step away from detecting the information deficit that caused it. Mm -hmm. That caused, for example, caused you to spend 45 minutes looking for your pliers. But maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, if I need my pliers to do my work and I go looking for them, how is that bad? How is that the enemy? How is that motion? I need to have my pliers if I'm going to get my work done. Well, you're right about that. You do need your pliers. But also recognize that looking for your pliers is not the same as using them. It is not the same as working. The correct logic, the correct logic runs like this. Sometimes I get so excited, I, I, my mouth gets ahead of my words. I just, my words are late. <laughs> if I'm looking for my pliers in order to be able to do my work, then I'm obviously not yet doing my work while I am looking for them. That's all I'm saying. And there's a name for that. 
the name is motion. Motion is anything you have to do or else you could not do your work. But it, So that's our fifth building block. And I want to say one other thing. Motion has this powerful multiplier impact as well because while motion is going on, the clock is ticking. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. My great sensei in the 1980s said this to me, and I mean, I thought about it for about four years before I absorbed what it meant. This is Shigeo Shingo, co-architect of the Toyota production system, one of our great models. Time is the shadow of motion. Tick-tock, tick-tock. You can use time to create. You can use time to do this micro-business, this motion. Okay? The clock is ticking. And that brings me to the sixth building block, which is work. Because when we say motion is moving without working, we really only have a half a definition. We have to define work in order to know what we're not doing when we're in motion. And that completes our understanding of motion. So what is work? Our sixth building block. Work is moving and adding value. We must move in order to add value, in order to convert material or procedures into products and services that our customers want and need. Value is not added by accident or by magic. We don't work on the starship enterprise, at least not yet, (laughs) the enterprise. When Captain Jean-Luc Picard wants a cup of tea, he doesn't have to boil the water. He doesn't even have to to get his teacup. He simply stands in front of the replicator, which is not a vending machine, and says in a soft and elegant voice, Earl Grey tea hot, please. And Earl Grey tea comes out piping hot, instantly materializing from the inside out, inside of an exquisite Wedgwood teacup and saucer. And his friend Q, if you're a Trekkie, you'll know this, his friend Q, rather more advanced, a rather more advanced ET, I will say, doesn't even have to say cup of tea. He just has to think it. So that's not our world. (laughs) That's not our world. We have to work. If we want a cup of tea or an F-16 fighter jet, we have to move in order to create, in order to add value. We must engage our muscles, our mind, in order to build a sub-assembly, grind a housing, administer a medication, produce a proposal. So... Motion is moving and not adding value. Now I've said it. Now I can say it because we're talking about behavior, not about people. Motion is moving and not adding value. We must move and add value, and that is our work. That's our sixth building block. So we've got two building blocks to to go, and plus I'm going to kind of tie this together into a, a description, so perhaps you get the full impact of this. And I look forward to talking to you about that again in a moment. Thanks very much. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, it's Gwendolyn again, and you are listening to The Visual Workplace, and we are on our seventh building block of visual thinking. Our seventh building block is this, the value field. Where and when do you add value? The answer is when and only when you're in your value field. Only then can you add value. Only then can you work. It's as simple as that. Your value field is a specific location. It is where work happens. For a runner, the running track is that runner's primary value field. No matter how much time he or she may spend working out in the gym, finding the right shoes, eating the healthiest foods, only when he or she is on the track running are are these runners in their primary value field. Only then is she about the business for which she has trained year after year. Look at the visual details in the surface of a track, your local track. All the information around the lanes and the placement of the hurdles. These are visual standards and they are in the value field, in the landscape of work for the runner. Olympic careers begin and can end right there. You misplace a hurdle, you move it an inch or two off, and the Olympic hopeful will break an ankle and say goodbye to the games. It's the same for you. Since you can only add value when you're in your value field, anytime you're not there, you must be in the opposite state. And that opposite state is motion. You're in motion. So notice your motion. Here's one very powerful way by whether or not you're in your value field. That means you have to name your value field. You have to name it. And there's a tiny tricky part, and that is we almost always have just one primary major value field, but we're supported by many secondary value fields. So you have to name your primary value field and know that's where you do your work. The supporting value fields are certainly important. They need to be visual as well. Or I could tell you a great story about a microscope, but we won't have time today. I'll save that for another time. So at first, you might find it challenging to separate the two, your primary value field from your secondary. And that might be because simply because you never thought about your work like that before. If you're a machinist, you'll quickly understand that your pri- primary value field is your machine. 
That's where the material is. You load and you convert into greater value. Kaboom. When the ram hits the metal, boom, that's your value field. But what if you run six machines? Which one is primary? You know what? They, there's kind of sequential operations there. If you're a medical technician, an x-ray, then clearly the x-ray machine is your point of value where you measure all your motion. But if you're a nurse, your primary value field becomes much less clear. Is it the patient is it room by room or is it the main nursing station? You need to undertake this thinking and you need to determine. It's the same way with managers and supervisors. Your main value field, believe it or not, excuse me, I don't mean to be disrespectful, is not your desk. It's Gemba. It's that other place. So these are important issues, matters, points, principles to raise. And you know what? It's worth taking time to think about it, especially if there are other people listening to the show or you use, you're using the podcast. T- tackle this. Take it on. So we've got the value field. We know that we are going to be in motion when we're not in our primary value field. Let's move on to building block number eight, our final building block motion metrics, because here are some measures or some yardsticks by which you can measure your motion. So the final building block is motion metrics, and a metric is just another term for uh, measurement, a standard unit of measurement. A motion metric is a mechanism or a yardstick that we use to track our motion, to find out how much motion there is. You've, I've named several ways of doing it. One of the most powerful is keeping track of your questions. Get a memo pad, and on the, in the front of your little 25-cent memo pad, mark down the number of times you are asked a question. Flip it over and mark down the number of times you ask a question. Answer a question, are asked, ask. Or the number of times you're interrupted and the number of times you interrupt someone else. But here are some other ways. Use your eyes. If you've left your value field, you're in motion. Use a stopwatch. When you leave the value field, click the stopwatch on. When you come back, click it off. When you leave, click it on. When you come back, click it off. Janice spent, I'm sorry, Buzz spent two hours and 35 minutes outside of his value field. And that day when he was using the stopwatch, I know he came up to me. This is a great American operator, machinist. And he said, you know, now I know, Gwendolyn, why I don't get my work done. I'm never in my value field. It was a big insight for him. He took it on. No one had to supervise him. And he began to bring the reasons that he left his value field back into his value field. Some people call that a sell. Or your value stream is contained. You can see the beginning and end of your value stream. That's a cell. and That's what Buzz went, went about. Or you can use a pedometer. Janice traveled. She swears to me she did this in one day. I still don't believe her after all these years. 5.5 miles away from her value field in a single day. I mean, that's impossible. She would have to be working, walking all day, all day, all day. So anyway, she put a pedometer on her. When she left, she put it on. When she came back, she took it off. At the end of the day, she claimed she she did. She said, I will believe her. There, I believe her. Another way is a frequency check sheet, which is just keeping track. It's pretty much like the memo pad. When you track your own motion, you get rock-solid evidence of the level of struggle, the level of struggle that you are dealing with in your own work. And I want to say that to your CEOs as, to CEOs as well. You have to define more closely what your work is. 
what Likert calls standard work. You have to define that and you'll be able to then measure your value field. Okay? And I remember Janice's colleague, Linda, who was confined to a wheelchair because uh, she had a uh, deer accident. This was in Illinois. She used a frequency check sheet that showed that she left her value field in three days, 42 times, for work-related reasons. Not to take a break, but for work-related reasons. She hadn't realized that she was in motion. She never before thought of those side trips as a problem, but always felt the pressure of not enough time. So track your own motion, and you do not need to share it with anyone. And supervisors, if you're thinking about using this technique with your group, let this be someone's, a person's personal study, self-reflection. There is no need to advertise it. Do it as a scientist in the laboratory of your own work. And only if that person volunteers, and many people will, get excited about what they're discovering, leave them alone and let them do their own investigation, their own research. So I want to put it all together now so that you see how these eight building blocks work. I call it the cycle of visual thinking. And I think we'll post this on uh, our website so you can see this cycle. It's very simple. The first thing you do is you notice your motion. Ah, look, I just left my value field. That means I'm not working. I must be in motion. Step two is name the information deficit that triggered your motion. Wow, if I'm in motion, it had to have been triggered by an information deficit, a missing answer. What was that? And you know, sometimes these answers are sub-vocalized. In other words, they become so chronic and so kind of part of our workday that we don't even notice. We just bolt. We leave our bench. We leave our station. We go wandering, and it just seems routine. So name the information deficits. You're going to be naming the missing answer. Step three is ask that unanswered question. It's going to be one of the six core questions. Ask that question out loud so that it is linked to your motion. Which question do I need answered? And then step four is simply this. Decide where you want to install the answer that captures that information into the physical landscape of work. This is a little bit tricky because what we're doing is we're installing an answer. We're not just getting the answer. We're installing the answer into the physical landscape of work. And you need to decide where's the best place for you to install it, embed it, so you can pull it to you when and as you need it. This is often called the point of use. So you install it at the point of use and you pull it to you. I want to, and there's one more step. You decide, so step four is decide where you want to put it. And step five is simply put it. Create a visual device. Translate the answer into a visual device. Now I'll turn that answer into a visual device and I will install it where I've decided it will be best situated and I will never need to ask that question again. I will never need to answer that question again because the answer is firmly installed as close to my true value field as possible. That's the way it works again and again and again. I call it an iterative process. Iteration means we're just doing it again and then we're doing it again. I want to 
point out to you that the eight building blocks is not do not represent a methodology, a step-by-step protocol. They are instead a way of grooming your mind and your heart, your awareness, to um, a sequence of thinking. You are creating a thinking pattern. You are getting into the habit of looking for what is not there that's triggering something very physical called your motion, your arms, your legs, your mouth moving in a way that is seeking information that's not available at your fingertips. Okay? So, we have covered the eight building blocks. You know, using the knowledge that you've learned is exactly how you can begin to take the struggle out of your work and populate your work environment with dozens, no, not dozens, hundreds of visual devices, thousands company-wide, creating an enterprise of splendid visual functionality, self-ordering, self-explaining, self-regulating, self-improving, where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night. So it's the end of our show. I want to thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you tune in again. I hope you find this instructive. On our next show, Carol Shaw, Dean Emeritus at the University of Dayton, will be joining us for Moments of Truth, Cornerstone Moments in Rolling Out Visual. I hope you tune in. Thanks for listening. I look forward to it. You bet I do. Thanks. We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening.